0: Welcome to The Security Distillery, a podcast about current international security issues. Today, we're taking an in-depth look at the Western Sahara and its forgotten people, the Sahrawi. Last November, Trump's decision to recognize Morocco's sovereignty over the Western Sahara in exchange for the normalization of Moroccan-Israeli relations brought the Western Sahara back into the international spotlight. Clara and I are going to bring you up to speed on the historical and contemporary context of the region hopefully providing insights into why it remains a hotly contested area to this day. Make sure to stick around until the end when we bring in the rest of our team for a more casual conversation about the topic where we share our personal thoughts. So Clara, could you give us a short history of the Western Sahara region and its people?
1: Absolutely, disengaged from Spain and now occupied in Morocco, the Western Sahara is still considered by some as the last colony in Africa. And they have been experiencing a very complicated situation since many decades because, despite the multiple attempts of the UN to hold a referendum, there are almost two generations that have been born in refugee camps and that continue to wait for a solution that never seems to arrive. And it is very impressive because the Sahara, we are fascinating people. Despite the harsh environments, the, the inhabitants of these arid lands have managed to survive for centuries through permanent nomadic movements. Normally, they were organized in tribes called cabils, and they were led by a sheikh until the 19th century. And hence, it was not until then that the formal imperialism, that the formal imperialism started in Africa and that the Spanish started to, to study this colonial history in the territory. And specifically, it was on December the 26th of the year 1884, when Spain claimed the right to the Western Sahara.
0: So could you tell us a bit more about Spain's history in relation to the Western Sahara?
1: Of course, um, it is very interesting because Spain-Sahara's relations date back to the 15th century when the Spanish started to present a strategic interest in the region. And um, we talk about a first establishment in 1476 when Deo Garcia Herrera, who was the Lord of Lanzarote, built a fort that he baptized as Santa Cruz de la Mar Pequeña and which was later destroyed by Sultan al wardasi However, um, I think that the most important thing to bear in mind is that what is understood as the Western Sahara today was a piece of land that was claimed by Spain during the Berlin agreements in 1884. And uh, we, we see a former Spanish presence when they materialized um, the, their, sorry, their presence uh, by building Villacisneros one year later.
0: So was that some sort of mansion
1: well, way bigger. It is actually a city, mostly known as Teila nowadays. But um, however, coming back to the colonization period, I think it's very important to, to highlight that the Sahara we didn't see how Spain de facto colonized the area until the 1950s, since during the first decades, the Spanish, presion, the Spanish presence was merely limited to some military post in the coast. And most importantly, it was not um, until Franco, who was the dictator of Spain at the time, was informed about um, the discovery of an important phosphate deposit that the Sahara was taking more into account. And he then decided to, to turn it into one more province of the Spanish states. And um, he took this decision because he was just, um, he really wanted to protect his sovereignty towards um, this region as Morocco was really interested by being the first exporter of phosphates at the time. But nonetheless, um, two years later, in 1963, the UN began to consider the Sahara as a territory pending decolonization. And uh, a decade later, when Spain's departure from the territory was inevitable, a study of autonomy for the Sahara was presented and warranty in the Sp- Spain, Spain the last words in the decision to be taken in the, in the African region. And finally, it was in 1975, when Franco, Franco died, that the Spanish state writes its last pages in the history of the Sahara.
0: So what about Morocco's role? When did they enter the scene?
1: Well, it was not until Morocco gained its independence in 1956 that they laid claim to the Western Sahara with calls from the UN for its decolonization. However, despite international courts in favor of the Saharan determination, King Mohammed Hassan II launched a a demographic strategy known as the Green March in 1975, where he encouraged around 350,000 unarmed Moroccans to cross to Western Sahara in order to, to claim the territory and in this time, it was when the Polisario Front, which um, is a Sahrawi-, a Sahrawi independence movement, which was um, initially fighting against Spanish, the Spanish occupation, started a resistance movement against the Moroccans.
0: So, so what happened next then? Was, was the Green March effective?
1: It was highly effective. Um, this pressure led to Spain to officially cede the Western Sahara to Morocco and Mauritania on the 26th of February of 1976. On the next day um, the Polisario proclaimed the Sahara Arab Democratic Republic which was eventually recognized by Algeria and Libya. Um, however shortly after that in 1979 Mauritania, Mauritania signed a peace deal with the Polisario renouncing its claim to the Western Sahara but um, it was not the, the same case for Morocco which uh, in the around the 1980s illegally annexed the, the territory and this eventually triggered the violent Western Sahara War, lasting for six years, which resulted in the death and displacements of thousands of Sahrawis, and even though they even managed to establish a ceasefire, a ceasefire in 1991, based on the promise for a referendum on independence, this has never this has never taken place so far.
0: So, what were the results for the Sahrawis? What happened to them?
1: Well, um, this resulted into an increased Moroccan control of the, over the lands with 10 of, ten of thousands of Sahrawis who were relocated to semi-permanent refugee camps in Algeria by the turn of the 21st century, and that is still received that today. And all I can say is that Morocco now controls around 80% of the, of the territory. But um, what about the recent events, Martin? Can you give us an outline about how the situation evolved during these last months?
0: Yeah, sure. So the Trump administration's recognition of Morocco's claim to the Western Sahara was granted in exchange for Morocco's normalization of its ties with Israel. This was part of a wider U.S.-Israeli diplomatic effort in the MENA region, which saw Israel normalize ties with the UAE, Bahrain, and Sudan. This is one of the most significant political developments to occur in the Western Sahara for years, and it's what originally drew our attention to the region.
1: So, um, what is the current situation in the Western Sahara?
0: Well, I'll bring everyone up to speed by touching on the political, demographic and economic realities of the territory. First, I will discuss the main actors operating in the Western Sahara. On one side, we have Morocco, whose claim to the region is recognized by notable states such as France, Saudi Arabia, Turkey and now the US. Whether Trump's move to recognize Morocco's claim will survive the Biden administration is up for debate. And we can definitely bring that up in the group discussion.
1: So um, as, I may, as I mentioned earlier, on the other side, we have the Polisario Front and the state they created. Um, where do they stand in the current international system, Martin?
0: Well, the Sahrawi Arab Democratic Republic is currently recognized by 39 states, which is down from a previous high of 84. Uh, important regional support, support includes states such as Algeria, Nigeria, South Africa, and Ethiopia. Most importantly, Algeria has supported the establishment of large Sahrawi refugee camps within its territory, which have acted as the headquarters of the Polisario Front and as a place for exiles to flee from Moroccan-controlled territories. The majority of Sahrawis now live as exiles in Algeria, totaling a community of 210,000 people, with only 160,000 Sahrawis living in the Western Sahara and a further 100,000 spread across countries in the region. These figures, of course, are just according to reports by the UN and human uh, and government reports, and they all are from different years, so the true figures may be different.
1: And uh, what would they want to flee?
0: Well, this is a highly contentious topic based on who you ask, but essentially Sahrawi refugees have accused Moroccan security forces of severe human rights abuses in the Western Sahara region. These accusations have been substantiated by the Human Rights Watch organization, who wrote that the Moroccan security forces have, and I quote, prevented gatherings supporting Sahrawi self-determination, beat activists in their custody and on the streets, imprisoned them and sentenced them in unfair trials, and even used torture. Check out the Nushada Foundation at nushada.com if you want to learn more about the Sahrawi perspective. It should be noted that the Moroccan government denies human rights abuses in the territory and frequently justifies its actions as resistance against the Polisario Front.
1: And what about Mayo's supranational organizations? Where do they stand?
0: Well, the spokesperson of the African Union, Commission Chair, recently reaffirmed the long-held position of the African Union on the region, which is as follows. The African Union supports the self-determination of the Western Sahara, through a free and fair referendum as decided by the UN Security Council. But like you mentioned earlier, this referendum was promised in the UN Brokered Peace Deal of 1991, but still hasn't happened. So um, with the Moroccan Moroccan permanent representative at the UN saying, the issue of a referendum is well dead and buried for more than two decades. There is no way you can raise the debt. Indeed, the UN mission established to conduct a referendum in the Western Sahara, Sahara Has been extended 47 times since 1991 and it costs 60 million dollars per year to maintain. Additionally, the mission has been criticized for being the only UN peacekeeping mission established since 1978 to operate without the capacity to monitor human rights.
1: And so how has the Polisario Front responded to these diplomatic stalemates?
0: Well Dr. Sidi Omar Who's Polisari's representative to the UN said 30 long years of waiting for the referendum to be held, with us exercising maximum restraint, have just emboldened Morocco with the occupation of our lands. And he concluded by saying, We've been left with no other option but to resume the armed struggle. These grave words, grave words explain the motivation behind the recent end to the ceasefire.
1: And so how did this ceasefire break exactly?
0: So we, don't, we have limited information as to the exact specifics, but according to the Human Rights Watch, a group of Sahrawi protesters were reportedly blocking the road that connects the Western Sahara to Mauritania in the south of the, of the region. Uh, the protesters were positioned in the buffer zone and were later evicted by Moroccan troops on the 13th of November. The Polisario Front then urged, urged the UN to intervene, claiming that the move violated the ceasefire agreements. Um, but when no significant response came from the UN, clashes broke out across the Western Sahara region, and the next day, the Sahrawi Arab Democratic Republic officially declared war on the 14th of November against Morocco.
2: So before we
1: join, before we join the rest of the group for the discussion, what are the facts on the ground, Martin?
0: So the majority of the territory is effectively controlled by Morocco. The Sahrawi-controlled area is a thin strip of land spanning the length of the region's border with Algeria and Mauritania, and it makes up just about 25% of the region's land area. Imagine a thin strip of land sandwiched between the Moroccan Western Sahara to the west, Mauritania to the south and southeast, and Algeria to the northeast. You can Google this and you'll see sort of the outlines of their current territory. Now, the border between Moroccan and Sahrawi Western Sahara consists of a 2700 kilometer long um, sand wall, which is referred to as the wall of shame by pro-independence actors. This defensive structure is accompanied by what the Journal of Mine Action estimates to be the longest uninterrupted minefield in the world. Moroccan military bases and observation posts can be found all along the border as well. So it's highly militarized.
1: And what is being protected with this border
0: Well, this is probably what I found to be most interesting about the entire conflict, uh, and it's it's about its relationship to the global food chain. So phosphorus rock is a finite natural resource, which is a vital ingredient in the making of industrial fertilizers, which is needed to maintain modern agriculture. Known deposits of this rock are incredibly scarce, and Morocco controls about 75% of the world's phosphate rock reserves. The Western Sahara region is rich in phosphate and according to the Western Sahara uh, Resource Watch, it contributes to around 25% of Morocco's total sales of phosphate rock in 2014. I should say that the Moroccan government claimed that the Western Sahara only made up 1% of all of uh, phosphate reserves exploited by Morocco in 2014. But the existence of the longest conveyor belt in the world, stretching from a mine in the Western Sahara to the coast, seems to suggest otherwise. So I may have painted a relatively negative picture here, but I can end with a note for optimism. The 2020 Western Sahara Resource Watch report noted that the exports of the Western Sahara Sahrawi phosphate almost halved since 2019, when big companies decided to stop buying phosphates from the region due to ethical concerns. So if the world stops buying phosphate Morocco extracts from the region, then it's more likely a political solution could occur as the region becomes less profitable. Um, Follow the Western Sahara resource watch if you want updates on this situation. Of course, the recent US recognition of the territory could um, roll back these advances as companies feel emboldened to do business, but we don't know for sure whether that's gonna happen yet. Anyway, I hope you found that as as interesting as we did. Uh, We're now going to discuss this topic in a more informal manner with the members of our team. Uh, hopefully presenting a diverse range of um, opinions on the subject.
2: Thank you, Clara and Martin, for the brief but thorough overview of the history and current dynamics in Western Sahara. Moving to the discussion now, I would like to ask you, Genio, what you found most interesting about this topic.
3: Thank you, Minale. Uh, in my opinion, the most important part of this was how the EU, as a dual approach to this matter, as they actually recognize Western Sahara as independent according to the UN rules. But on the other end, their member states uh, are still using the waters of Western Sahara as they were part of the Moroccan waters.
0: Right, so what do you think is the reason for this dual approach? Is, is the EU trying to play both sides? Is it a purely diplomatic situation?
3: I don't think the EU is to blame directly for this as they are trying to stick to the human rights as much as they can, but rather their member states are guilty of pursuing their own uh, interest in trade affairs as they try to to get the best deal as they what is can in a very realistic way. And they just don't seem to be interested in pursuing international law in this. So what do you think, Minale? what is the most interesting part of this in your opinion?
2: Um, I found it very interesting to uh, read about and think about what the role of the US can be now with the Biden administration. Um, So there's hope among the Sahrawi people that Biden might reverse Trump's move, given the fact that it's in his interest to distance himself from actions that were undertaken by the previous administration. Additionally, Biden is generally considered to be more respectful of international institutions compared to Trump. However, I personally do not think that we can expect a reversal um, from Biden anytime soon, at least.
1: And uh, why do you think that would
2: happen, Minale? So, first of all, um, most basically, I think he's too busy with domestic issues at the moment. Um, And I don't think that. This specific uh, situation is on top of his list, um, and then secondly, he uh, has always been very pro-Israel, and he receives um, financial support from pro-Israel groups as well. So these will definitely put pressure on him to not reverse the deal, um, and he already indicated that he will continue uh, the pursuit of what Trump uh, calls the Abraham Accords um, in re-establishing ties between israel and arab and muslim nations Uh, right
0: yeah but yeah i guess like the optimistic counterpoint there would be just to say that just because they don't reverse the situation doesn't mean things couldn't get better like it could just stay at an official recognition and the economic economic realities could stay the same but uh yeah very interesting
2: yeah that's true i do think that um the, if it stays like this, the Sahrawi people will still not be happy and might still push for a reversal in the end, but I don't think it's going to happen. <laughs> um, so, Clara, what did you find most interesting? Well, for
1: me, you know, that's, as I am Spanish, I found very interesting the fact that um, Spain-Sahara's relations date back to the 15th century, and also the fact that um, the Sahara was turned into one more Spanish province in 1961, because that demonstrates that the colonization that the Spanish did in the Sahara was not a conventional colonization, in the sense that there was not the normal colonial relation between the Spanish state and the Sahrawi people. So yeah, I think that that was fascinating.
2: Yeah, that's indeed very interesting. Um, but what is the current Spanish government doing uh, with regards to Sahrawi matter? So unfor- unfortunately, not much. Uh,
1: maybe it's because of the COVID or the domestic affairs that are going on in Spain right now. But it is very sad because one of the members of the Spanish government, which he, who is the vice president nowadays, um, Pablo Iglesias, he was a very, very active activist. Um, pro-Sahrawi people and he was constantly claiming that once he he would reach power he would really fight for the Sahrawi cause but um, all I can say is that up to this date we have not seen any major move from his behalf so yeah on his behalf. But uh, yeah what about you Martin what was the most interesting parts of the Sahara for you?
0: Yeah so I mentioned it in the in the uh original recording that we did up there. And um, it was the economic aspect for me. So the importance of, of the phosphate reserves and the phosphate mines in particular in uh, the Western Sahara. Um, because in my opinion, if the Moroccan government can't profit from the region, then it becomes far more likely that there will be a political solution. So if there can be a, a continuation of the work that the Sahrawi Resource Watch was doing, and more and more companies are pressured to stop buying um, phosphates from the Western Sahara, then I think we could see real political change.
3: But don't you think that there can also be a strategic value to that land? And maybe since it's the only border that Morocco shares with Mauritania and is still an important transport corridor, even if they once lack of uh, resources.
0: No, yeah, you're of course you're right that um, like territory is always going to be valuable, especially when it has transport links uh, to the rest of Africa. In Morocco's case, but I still think that because of how um sort of profitable phosphate is, it, it is the most important issue. Because say say they they couldn't profit off of the phosphate resources, it would be possible with an independent Western Sahara to still have free transport access through the country, to have some sort of fishing arrangements, you know, all of these things would be possible. So in my opinion, it's the most interesting and most important part.
3: These opinions are our own and do not represent the views of the security distillery or the MCES program. Thanks for listening. And just as a final reminder, if you are interested in learning more about these issues, please follow the links at our site thesecuritydistillery.org slash podcast. Please subscribe to our podcast if you enjoyed and share it with your friends.